Kia ora, and welcome to my daily podcast. I'm Bernard Hickey. This goes out with my email newsletter and podcast called The Kaka. I uh, write and podcast for uh, paying subscribers and focus on housing affordability, climate change, and poverty reduction. Today, I wanted to look at inflation, what's caused it, uh, who's to blame, and what we do about it. Uh, this is all topical because you might have heard yesterday, and I put out a, a breaking news email yesterday afternoon, the government has decided to cut $4 billion in spending over four years, in part because it says times are tough and we need to tighten our belts. And the, uh, the other main argument is that uh, by tightening fiscal policy, this would take some of the pressure off inflation. Now, this seemed like quite a large announcement at the time, although there has been some previews of it, and it all made a lot more sense this morning when we heard from the IMF. The IMF uh, put out a, an assessment of New Zealand's economy, which it does every year or two, and it said that the New Zealand government should uh, uh, tighten its budget. Now, there's two ways to tighten your budget. You can either cut spending or you can increase taxes. And uh, despite what you might have heard, that it was all about the IMF telling New Zealand to cut its spending, actually, it also recommended that taxes be increased in some areas. So, for example, it recommends a capital gains tax. And uh, it has also uh, recommended um, other taxes to try to deal with climate change. It... Um, uh, however, uh, ironically, perhaps, has also recommended a cut in the corporate tax rate because New Zealand's corporate tax rate is quite a bit higher than in some other countries. There has been a race to the bottom in the last uh, decade or two, led by Ireland. So uh, we have a government choosing to cut spending to try to deal with inflation. And the narrative you've no doubt heard elsewhere, uh, and this is because this is what politicians are focused on, particularly opposition politicians, they argue that it's all about the government spending over the last two or three years um, aggressively, in part in response to COVID, but the argument is that uh, money has been wasted and the government's been spraying cash around and this is what's called inflation. Well, that's a very simplistic and not accurate view uh, inflation comes from all sorts of places. Uh, it's come from energy and food prices, which have come from overseas. And no politician or corporate or central bank can be blamed for that. It also comes from um, uh, monetary policy. So a central bank can loosen monetary so much that it stimulates the economy too much and creates inflation. And certainly, in retrospect, the Reserve Bank's decision to print uh, significant amounts to buy government bonds and to uh, uh, loosen LVR restrictions certainly stimulated the economy too much in 2020 and early 2021. But that's not the whole story. You can also blame, if you like, inflation on uh, um, actors in the economy pushing too hard, taking advantage of um, strong demand to increase either their wages or their profit margins. So there are ways to understand this, and uh, they've been done overseas, and now they've been done here. So 
uh, you would have heard in my email and podcast yesterday that uh, an analysis done by the CTU, First Union and uh, Ac- Action Station has found that just over half of the inflation in the 18 months to the end of 2022 was caused by companies increasing their profit margins, in particular those in transport, in banking and in uh, some food uh, items. Now, uh, you may also have heard from May a report by Sense Partners for Business New Zealand, which said that this so-called greed inflation narrative was an imported one and inaccurate in New Zealand. Well, it's worth having a closer look at all of the uh, various claims. And in a minute, I have a 20-minute conversation with in detail uh, with the authors of the most recent report about that uh, um, the, the analysis they've done and also the comparison with the Sense Partners analysis. But I've also included in today's email the various pieces of research by various places which show that this phenomena of uh, rising uh, profits uh, being responsible for a significant chunk of the inflation is uh, not unique to New Zealand and it has been documented overseas by, for for example, the likes of the European Central Bank, uh, which I've included uh, links to there, by the the, um, Economic Policy Institute, a think tank in the United States, by the Australian Institute, a think tank in uh, Australia, uh, by the OECD, uh, obviously the Global uh, Economic uh, Analysis Organization, and it turns out by the International Monetary Fund. So the IMF, which at one point is effectively blaming the government for put, for having too much inflation and telling it to cut costs, has also documented in Europe that um, uh, profits are a substantial part of the inflation story over there. So the irony is here that the government, which is cutting spending, uh, in particular uh, contractors' spending, um, uh, consultant spending, and has reduced some uh, allowances for new spending. And by the way, it's worth noting that the $4 billion uh, is worth less than 0.3% of GDP over four years, uh, about $10 a week per household and reflects uh, changes in spending plans to increase spending. So it's not actually reducing current spending and is very unlikely to lead to any actual job losses. There are some projects that now won't go ahead and uh, some spending that was planned and now won't happen, but it's hardly the sort of uh, swinging cuts that are proposed by others and uh, which would be broadly described as austerity. Uh, um, I'm not a fan of the idea of uh, seeing government as like a household in that when times are tough, a household should cut its cloth to fit. Actually, a government is different from a household. It is a collection of all sorts of players. And actually, a government is in a very um, uh, good position to act as a counter-cyclical balancer in an economy. When an economy goes into a recession... And when there's surplus capacity in that economy, people who don't have work, all sorts of factories and other uh, machines lying um, idle, 
often it's a good thing for a government to step up to run a deficit and to cushion the blow of uh, a recession. Now, you could argue with 3.5% unemployment, there's not much room for a government to stimulate without creating inflation. Um, it's interesting that people have been saying for a couple of years now that unemployment can't go any lower and is bound to rebound, except it hasn't. Uh, uh, but certainly this this narrative that when times are tough, a government should cut its spending and cut its cloth to fit and tighten its belt just as a household uh, does, is just plain wrong. And we've known it's been wrong for 100 years. It became fashionable um, in uh, at various points in the last 30 or 40 years to see a government like that, often for uh, ideological reasons to actually squeeze down the size of government when you had a chance. And uh, this is something uh, that um, needs to be challenged. And uh, to be fair, the government in this case has appeared to respond to the demands for spending cuts, uh, but not in a massive way. And um, certainly you'd uh, be surprised to see too much of a change on the inflation front because of these changes. But the research shows that there are various players in uh, an economy, and they're not just governments. They are also companies, and they're also workers. And this research shows from around the world that there has been an unusual and substantial and noticeable increase in profits, and in some cases profit margins, uh, over the last couple of years, particularly in areas where there isn't much competition and where uh, the price setter is the company. So... Um, a little chat there about inflation. And now it's time for uh, um, an interview with the authors of the report about profit-led inflation in Aotearoa. Well, kia ora and uh, welcome to the kaka, to Craig Rennie from the CTU and, and also Ed Miller from First Union. Kia ora. Nice kia ora. to be with you. Tell us about this report that you've written, Craig, and why you decided to write it. Sure. So thank you, Ben, for having us um, today. We've been, you know, the city has been concerned for a long time that our approach to tackling inflation has been wrong. Um, just before Christmas this year, we produced our Inflation and Incomes Act, which looked at inflation at that point in time and suggested that, you know, the approach that we were taking was laying the burden of our inflation response on the wrong shoulders. And the anecdotal evidence that we received from trade unions is that many people were suffering, many workers were suffering with the cost of living crisis. Whilst at the same time, companies were reporting record profits. Um, and so and often we were celebrating in national media these record profits, um, whilst asking at the same time workers to show wage restraint um, and asking them to hold back on asking for pay rises in order to reduce the level of inflation. So, but since that period of time, there's been an emerging body of work, both theoretical and analytical, including the work, importantly, of Isabella Weber uh, and others, um, that's led to us looking um, at inflation differently this time. Now, some of the most overused words in economics are, it's different this time, but um, it, it really does feel different. And we want to see what was going on in terms of New Zealand. Um, so the CTU wanted to do that. And I guess then the CTU got lucky that Ed, who's also on the call, um, wanted to do that work. And the majority um, of the work, the praise here for any work, should go to Ed for his, uh, his contribution um, to, 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 the, uh, to, to the mathematical parts of this. 
Cool. Ed, what did you find? <clears throat> yeah, well, um, thanks a lot for that, Craig, and, and great to be with you, Bernard. Uh, we broke down the data into a couple of different periods because there's some clear different periods uh, of experience within the data over the last couple of years. So the prime kind of finding, I guess, is that uh, during the cost of living crisis period, which we're calling uh, from mid-2021 till the end of 22, uh, that during that period, contribution to the uh, GDP deflator from profits was 50, 55%, which effectively means that 55% uh, of the domestic inflationary pressure being experienced came from profits. Uh, and the, over the same period, you had 28% of pressure coming from wages. So during that cost of, cost of living crisis period, while rate of inflation was really surging, at the same time as, as Craig was saying, we were seeing all these record profit results, that there is a, a clear contribution from a clear dominant contribution from profits. This echoes um, the pre-pandemic period. So during, or in fact, during the pre-pandemic period, it's even more decisive. You have, I think it's about a 64% profit contribution um, and labor being less than 20%. Uh, and you get sort of the opposite uh, effects taking place during the proper pandemic period. And I know people might define the pandemic period very, very differently. I'm not trying to say this is pandemic and this is not. I'm just trying to get ways of defining time periods. So we've looked at from the beginning of 2020 till mid-2021, where the wage, wage contribution is decisive. But I think it's important to kind of put that in the context of there was no inflation at the time. So yes, the wage, the labor contribution was significant, but nobody was complaining about experience. Uh, about rising prices during this period. So that's kind of the, the main finding that in both the pre-pandemic and the cost of living crisis periods, that the wage contribution was really the dominant contribution to the GDP deflator, which is a way of measuring that domestic inflation. And Craig, uh, what was the um, what was the way that businesses increased their prices more than their costs? So there are a number of ways in which that can occur. Um, you can keep your profit margin the same. Um, so, you know, if your profit margin is, say, 10%, but the base inputs to your costs rise, then if it's the same margin, your level of nominal profit starts to rise, and so your price rises. So the price per good starts to rise. Some companies chose to actually increase their margins during the period of time. And if we look at, for example, at food manufacturing, we can see uh, post-2021 a quite significant trend of, um, of margin increase um, during that period. And that, again, is of often premised upon the back of rising input prices being used to mask that margin price, uh, uh, that margin increase. But then if we look at other um, sectors that aren't quite as affected by that, but which are, may benefit from it, so banking sector, for example, the net interest margin for banks, which is the difference between their borrowing costs and their lending costs, then that, that margin, that gap, which is their profit, is at its highest rate for eight years. And so we're able to demonstrate by, lo by looking at the sectors, by looking at the economy overall, that firms have been generating both higher nominal profits for those who haven't been increasing their margins, but also higher margins in particular sectors. And um, please correct me if I'm wrong here, Ed. One of the majority of things that we've seen is that margins often went up 
during the, 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 the early part of the cost of living crisis. Um, and then they started to come back down, but they rested at higher levels than the pre-pandemic basis. So you see, this is a repeated story. We've seen margins go up, they come back down, they come back down particularly as input costs start to rise even faster, but they rest at higher levels than they were in the pre-pandemic period, which suggests their margins are higher now than they would be. Ed, could, could you tell us um, whether this period of uh, increasing profits and profits being the uh, majority of the cause of inflation, whether that has ended now that we're into 2023 and whether this was just a one-off thing and um, there'll be a period when workers um, get more of their share relatively as they did during um, the midst of COVID. <clears throat> Bernard, I really hope you're right. Um, <laughs> look, this is a story that's still being written right now. Um, <clears throat> so we're, the, the profit data is starting to tick in, but it has a bit of a lag. And the way that we generate profit data is very kind of jumpy because it's generated, most of it is generated out of um, the tax collection data, which looks back at the amount of tax that's collected. And then you, make, you can make an estimate based on that. And it's only kind of a bit further back that we can get more accurate data that's collected by government. So that, that part of the story is still being written. But to, to the point, I think the key point, um, relevant to your question is that uh, firm pricing can happen at many different times during the year, but wage pricing tends to happen in set periods. So I think, you know, during this period where you have high rising input costs, uh, firms are able to keep updating their pricing and keep adjusting their margins quite, uh, you know, in a, quite a fine tuned way. The wage process doesn't really enable that. You have a number of opportunities. One is sort of minimum wage hikes. Two is if you have a collective agreement, you'll have set bargaining periods, which are generally at sort of the 12 or 24 month intervals. There's some very few, the three year contracts that exist. And then and very unusually, we get the situation where employers take it upon themselves to actually adjust wage rates voluntarily. And we did start to see that during the period of very low unemployment. It's the, I've been working in, in labor for about 12 years now, and it's the only time I've ever had employers coming to us saying, we want to, um, <laughs> we'd like to vary the terms of the agreement prior to the conclusion of the agreement. We did see that a little bit. But by and large, yes, you get, you know, firms have multiple opportunities to, to change their pricing. Labor has very limited opportunities to do that. And it may indeed unfold that you get a big lump adjustment as, you know, it, particularly in the big public sector bargainings where you have nurses or teachers or large groups of, you know, tens of thousands of workers on single collective agreements. All of a sudden, bang, you're getting a, a, an, a big adjustment, you know, catch up kind of wage in, in relation to all the inflation that's moved past. So. I hope you're right in that potential kind of retelling of how the story could be and as we move forward in 2023. Craig, um, your report is um, very detailed and includes various measures of inflation uh, relative to uh, uh, various measures of profits relative to inflation. Uh, there was a report out from Sense Partners mm. that was commissioned by Business New Zealand in May which concluded that uh, this idea of greedflation or profit-led inflation was uh, an imported narrative and said there was no evidence of uh, this sort of profit-led inflation. Um, how is your result and methods different from that one? 
Sure. Um, well, we, I think the first thing that we'd say is that we actually agree that sort of the greed, fra the greedflation framing is not a particularly helpful framing to any of this. Um, firms are always greedy. Um, they have a fiduciary duty to their shareholders. Um, they're always going to try and make profits. The question is, to what extent do they have the opportunity to do so? And are they presented with the context in which they can do so? And our argument is, is that the opportunity in the context has existed in the, in the past couple of years to allow them to do that, be that with the, the conflict in the Ukraine, be that with COVID, be that with supply chain disruptions. And those things have provided the means by which um, profits could rise quite significantly. In terms of why um, Sense Partners piece of work looks very different to ours, it uses a different methodology. And um, this is not to, I'm, I'm not critiquing their piece of work. And their piece of work, I'm sure, is a perfectly legitimate piece of work. And it's certainly run by a, by a very respectable consultancy. Um, but what I would say is that our method um, is the same method as, as has been employed by the OECD, by the IMF, by the European Central Bank, by a range of other very orthodox actors um, in terms of the economy. And that's why we chose to do it. It's, it's, it's not new in the world, but it's new to New Zealand. Um, and so we've produced this piece of work and... There's a few things that give us comfort in the findings of our piece of work. One, it's broadly the same finding as we, as we found in every other developed economy in the world where this piece of work has been done. Two, we've also looked at the annual enterprise survey data, which provides a very similar kind of result where profits have risen quite significantly and risen certainly much faster than wages and salaries have risen. And three, when we look at the Treasury's tax outturn data, again, we see very fast rises in profits during the periods in question. So it follows the international evidence. The other sources of evidence on profit in New Zealand point in the same direction. The simple thought experiment that you can run is this. If profits were lower, if firms took less profits, could prices be lower? If prices could be lower because... The price contains all of the information about the good at that point in time. If prices could be lower because profits are lower, then inflation could have been lower. And so to us, it's quite a straightforward um, question. And we're heartened that our findings follow the international examples, but also follow the other evidence that's available domestically. Ed, um, inflation is something that is um, handed to the Reserve Bank to manage in the short term. Uh, should the Reserve Bank have uh, done some more detailed research on profit-led inflation? Uh, because aside from the Sense Partners report and uh, your report, I haven't seen anything like this from the Reserve Bank. No, that, there hasn't been a whole lot like this from the Reserve Bank. They did um, take a bit of a deep dive on bank profits, uh, which kind of falls more under their financial sustainability mandate. Um, but they they haven't done a deep look into this. We did kind of push them a little bit to ask them if they were going to, and um, they, they said that they weren't going to. The governor of the Reserve Bank has made some quite good comments about the real deficiency in data in the profit space, which gives me, you know, I'm heartened by that, that comment. And I thought maybe with this report, we could sort of kick the ball in the right direction and see if that would give them a bit of a bit of an interest in following the lead because I know that they have much greater analytical capacity than exists within these four walls. It would be great to see um, a bit of follow-up in, in that respect from, from the Reserve Bank. 
But I, th- I do think, you know, putting lumping all the responsibility on the Reserve Bank is not the right approach. You know, they have a mandate that's set for them by the government of the day. And while that mandate has changed maybe this much in recent years, there is there could be a much a much broader sense of mandate, not just in terms of the, what the Reserve Bank should be doing to address inflation in the in the medium and long term, but what government could be doing to support the Reserve Bank from doing that. So in this report, we talk about um, providing some fiscal levers to sit alongside the monetary policy response that already exists there in the short term. If you have a period of expanded profits, there is um, a good argument to say that a little bit of fiscal redistribution would make an awful lot of sense. There have been clear winners from the sort of COVID period or COVID and, and pandemic cost of living crisis period. There might not be any sense of um, intentionality about who those winners were or anything like that, but people have won and people have lost. Why not play a more active role in the fiscal space? I'm thinking here about windfall profits on, on windfall uh, sorry, windfall taxes on windfall profits, uh, a bank levy profit during this period particularly. I mean, if you look at the Reserve Bank and the Commerce Commission's recent finding around bank profits, where they looked at the profitability measures where New Zealand basically leads the world, there is one country which does have slightly higher consistent return on equity than New Zealand. That's Canada. Canada put a windfall tax on, on its big banks recently. Uh, for the very same reasons that we should be thinking about that that as well, to make sure that the benefits of this inflation pass to those people who are in the most vulnerable position. And Craig, uh, what other um, measures could the government take? Because it's notable here that um, quite a few of the businesses in the areas where there has been some profit-led inflation uh, from your report, I'm thinking in particular banking, transport, uh, housing, um, the government itself is one of the major players and as well as a fiscal player, it's also a regulatory player in various different ways. What other responses could the government take? I think you've hit the nail on the head there, Bernard. There's a range of things that the government could be doing and really like in the report to talk about these in both the short run and the long run because in the long run, we can all be doing things, and particularly the government can be doing things to make sure that, in, that inflation doesn't re-emerge in sectors like rents. If we build enough housing, if we make sure there's enough housing in the long run, then rents can't explode in the way that they have. If we make sure we have sufficient public transport and we're getting cars off internal combustion engines, our reliance on the oil price starts to fall. And the resilience of the economy to the global oil price starts to increase. If we move um, to, for example, home insulation as a means of helping to support low-income households, that has the benefits of not only keeping them warmer, putting more money in their pockets, it also means that the crown has to pay less in terms of carbon we're delivering. We can deliver more with the energy that we have. It benefits everyone. It reduces inflation, not only for the household, but for the country itself. So there's a bunch of things that we can be doing in the long run. And then in the short run, as Ed has said, there's a range of other fiscal measures, but also we can be doing things um, very simply, like making sure we're lifting the minimum wage to protect minimum wage workers, to make sure that they're not bearing the cost of a cost of living crisis. They had nothing to do with delivering, making sure we're lifting main benefits and superannuation so that, again, those people who are on fixed incomes aren't bearing the cost of living crisis because, again, they've had nothing to do with the input of that. Finally, 
we can be making sure that we're not just kicking the can down the road um, in terms of just cutting expenditure on, on, on public services because that's just making somebody else pay for the problem 10 years from now. And what we don't want to do is to see, let's cut inflation today. Let's, you know, we talk about this in the report. We say our current approach to inflation is like trying to lose weight by not eating. You can do that in the short run, but it might have long run consequences. Um, and so we want to make sure that we're, uh, we've got a clear plan to invest in public services because it's actually by having some well-run public services in the future, we'll actually become more resilient to inflation in the future. It, uh, when you look overseas at those countries that have had relatively low inflation in the last couple of years, one of the common themes is that they often have quite um, strict and uh, heavy controls on some prices, uh, be it um, petrol or food or electricity. Uh, what do you think uh, the role is here for actual price controls? For example, Germany is uh, reportedly looking at a three-year nationwide rent freeze. Yeah, it's a, it's a really interesting discussion, and I think it's one that we need to kind of take the knee-jerk reactions out of because, it, you know, there's, there's no greater sort of sense of knee-jerk reactions to price controls or rent controls particularly, I think. But, <clears throat> look, there's a, a bunch of economies that have experimented with price controls during this period over the last couple of years and have had extremely good results. I think Spain is one that we can point to where they used a combination of windfall taxes, price controls, particularly rent controls, but also price caps on energy and free public services, particularly transport, medium and long and short distance transport. Spain has the lowest economy in the Eurozone now and is seeing falling unemployment. The United States is another example where they've used various elements of the fiscal balance sheet, you know, using the enormous strategic pet petroleum reserves that they have, which again, is a, a, it's an infrastructure and investment um, question and I'm not too far from the what used to be Marston Point up here in Whangarei where you know that was our strategic petroleum reserve it does not exist anymore we don't have the storage that we require and there's legislation that went through the house to make sure that we didn't have the storage that we require last year um, Craig's also highlighted, you know, if, if you if you, if you don't have that strategic uh, reserve available, then you need to think about transitioning how we do transport onto onto other uh, forms of technology, you know, renewable transport, electric cars, all that kind of a thing. On the issue of price controls, I think we need to have a serious adult discussion about it. We need to have it on the table in, in some sense. And that's where we need to start off getting the, the strong price data, the strong profit data. And we need to have a Commerce Commission or some other regulator that can really look at, at those things deeply. And, and I think, you know, that we should do some research into it, get some really good data and think about what a price control regime would look like for looking at future bouts of inflation. We don't have to push the go button right now, but we need to have an adult discussion about how to deal with these things. Um, you know, we, we've done quite detailed analysis in this report, but really the degree of analysis that, that's required to be able to do this effectively is much, much greater. Paul Donovan from UBS talks about, um, look, you can look at sectoral data, uh, but it doesn't really tell you much about what's happening in terms of margins on a profit on a, on a product by product basis. Uh, and you need to start getting into that level of granularity before you can make accurate kind of decisions about how to move on things like price control. So I think absolutely there's a case for the discussion to be had. There's a case for setting up some, some deep research, but we don't have the tools to be able to generate the data to, to be able to move from there at this point. 
Just finally, uh, Craig, um, what sort of things, what sort of responses could or should we see from the likes of StatsNZ, uh, the Reserve Bank, Treasury, uh, Productivity Commission, MB, um, as well as the government itself? Some of these bodies have some independence, uh, and there's the Commerce Commission as well, and then some of, some of the action could be pushed through by ministers. Um, and then there's the final uh, um, option for change, which is, you know, different parties in power, different policies. Across the range there, what sort of things could be done or what sort of responses would you like? Well, Craig, in the next half an hour, Bernard, I'll really get into the policy <laughs> detail on that one. But um, I guess the first thing I would say um, is, is, to Ed's, is to Ed's point, which I think is actually the important one, is actually about keeping an open mind in this space and not simply knee-jerk responding out of, you know, and saying, oh, orthodoxy tells us we can't do this, therefore we should not. Um, there's a famous um, quote from Keynes, um, which is that the difficulty lies not in the new ideas, but escaping from the old ones. Um, and uh, Paul Krugman has talked in this space about economists suffering from 70s affliction disorder, um, where we're still fighting inflation as if, as if this was the 1970s rather than 2023. Um, the drivers of inflation have changed. Um, the key factors inside that inflation change, we have a much more globalized economy. And so the things that we need to tackle inflation, the, the, the tools that we need to tackle inflation need to change as a consequence. So Stats NZ, of course, we'll be delighted if it collected better information on profits. We collect lots of information on workers' wages and on taxes and what they do, but we collect vanishingly little information about what happens to profits and what happens to firms inside in, in the sort of same space. So it would be lovely to have a similar level um, of information. In terms of ministers um, and decision makers, it's very much a case of what kind of economy do we want to have? What kind of economy do you want to see? And then let's make economic policy work to deliver that rather than starting off with inflation just needs to be low and that's the solution to my problem. We need an, we need an economy that delivers a thing, an outcome that we want. Low inflation is almost certainly a part of that, but it's a part of that as part of a mix of delivering what we like to call the more productive, more sustainable and more inclusive economy. And that means a wide range of things need to be in there not just simply um, lifting the OCR or using monetary policy to batter people into submission to reduce their spending. Um, as we've talked about in the past, the Reserve Bank's forecasts require 55,000 people to lose their jobs in order for um, unemployment to fall. If the best answer you have is to make 55,000 households poorer, get a different answer um, because it doesn't work. And for us, that's a key part of, our, um, you know, of, of what we want to see going forward at the election. Craig Rennie from the CTU, Ed Miller from First uh, Union, who are the um, co-producers, along with Action Station of Profit-Led Inflation in Aotearoa, a joint research note, uh, which you can see the details of and have a link to in the email associated with um, this discussion. Uh, kia ora. Great to see you both. Thank you very much. Thank you. Fantastic. Thanks.